0: Diving into data. Diving. Diving. Data. Diving into data. With TC Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, everybody. Welcome into another episode of Diving into Data. I am your host, TC Riley. How are we doing out there? How's everyone hanging in there? Wrapping up the month of July. About to turn the calendar to August. Still the dog days of summer, nice and warm, won't lie, can't personally wait for these temperatures to come down a little bit, but otherwise things are going pretty well, and so we have a great show for you today that I'm excited about. We got two big topics today, but the first one is tied to our title, and our title this week, The Data Dividend Project, Delightful, Delusional, or Disaster, and maybe we'll throw in a fourth option there if you want to say decent, depending on how you feel about this at the end, but... The Data Dividend Project, we're going to dive into what that is first off um, as a very high-level overview. This is Andrew Yang's kind of idea, project, former presidential candidate out in California. And it's all about all of these tech companies have all this data on you. And if it's your data, you should be getting paid for it so we're going to look at what this really means what their proposals are what they're trying to do we're going to look at some of the consequences of that and the scope of it what could actually feasibly happen and what would that look like and something of this significance if this actually does go through would massively change the way that a lot of these companies and frankly a lot of things in the consumer data world operate so we're gonna look at all the ramifications of that and let you come up with your decision of what you think we're not going to tell you here on diving into data what you should think about it but I'm going to try and lay the case out so you can make your decision. And just because it's my radio show and I get to do this, I'm also probably going to give you my take on it at the end. But the second topic I am very, very, very excited about also. If you know me, if you know the radio show, if you know diving into data and you've been listening for a while, you know that probably one of my favorite topics is sports sports. Back when Tyler Kern was my co-host on this show, sometimes we had trouble talking about anything but sports got us into trouble a couple times. We'd talk for 28 minutes about sports and then have to fit three stories in the last two or three minutes. But sports are back. Literally, they're back. They're here. You can watch them again. Real live sports. Not a recording from three years ago because I've seen every replay that the NFL and NBA networks are offering. No, real sports are back. So with the MLB season starting up last week, with baseball, I'm sorry, with basketball and hockey right around the corner, and then hopefully football coming this fall, we're going to look at everything that's going on around the sports world, but we're not just going to talk about sports. You know, ESPN, Fox Sports, there's tons of networks and channels out there that have all types of coverage around that. We're going to look at some of the numbers behind it and then some of the business impacts and the strategies around that, because that's what we do here on Diving Into Data. We'll specifically look at some of these lost revenue um, issues that have come about from playing in empty stadiums, playing in the bubble if you're in the NBA, things of that nature, and what that could potentially do to the leagues, how much money they're talking about. We're going to look at also, though, the suggestions, the good side. So how can these leagues replace or control these losses? What are some things they can do to innovate and improve and get better? What's some tech out there that maybe we can improve to help? That's something that overall I think is a big theme that's missed far too often over the last few months as people talk about you know, the COVID world. And it's really easy to get caught up in the numbers and caught up in the bad stuff. And yes, absolutely. We're still in a global pandemic. This is an incredibly serious situation. We're not making light of it by any means, but in some of the biggest challenges are the biggest opportunities in situations like this innovation. When you look back in the past has really taken a huge step forward and there's a ton of opportunity created. So, We're going to look at some of the ways we can do that specifically around sports, and I'm going to encourage you to take that mindset out of the show and go back to your business, your life, whatever you want to do, and apply that kind of mindset for, yes, it's bad, but what can I do to make this better? What can I do to innovate and take control and make an opportunity out of a bad situation? So with that, please sit back, relax, grab a drink if you choose to do so. Let's dive into some data. For our first and main topic this week, We are going to be looking at the Data Dividend Project. Again, our title this week, the Data Dividend Project, delightful, delusional, or disaster. Give you a couple options. A little scary sounding, but don't worry. It's kind of a fun topic. As always, before I get started, I want to throw a shout out to a couple sources that definitely helped me prep for this, and I'm going to pull some stats and numbers and quotes from. Uh, The biggest one, actually, in this one is the Data Dividend Project website itself. They have some good information about what they believe, what they're trying to do what better place to figure out what someone's trying to do than their actual own website. But also gonna reference a CNBC article um, talking about California Governor Newsom calling for this new data dividend almost two years ago. We're gonna look at an American Genius article that talks about just an overview of the data dividend project, and reference that in a couple takes they had. And also a great Slate article I found um, that's titled, Andrew Yang Wants You to Own and Sell Your Data. So it's uh, got a couple great sources, but again, let's take a step back. And first, a lot of you might be wondering, what the heck is the data dividend project? I've never heard of this. The end result and the most simple way to say this is that at the end of the day, the folks that want the data dividend project and are pushing this want tech giants to pay users for the use of their data. So this has actually been something that's been thrown around for a while. Uh, I mentioned that CNBC article, Governor Newsom, um, who is the governor out in California, actually I wanna say it was early 2019, late 2018, started calling for this and it was around the tech industry. And at the end of the day, what we're talking about, there's an old saying that if you aren't paying for the product, you are the product. And really what that actually means is that if you aren't actually tangibly giving a company money for their services or their product or their software or their tool or their app or whatever, then you are the product, your data, what you are doing, the information they are collecting, how they can take that data, resell it, advertise to you based on that, that is the product. So as we're talking about all this, the whole idea of the Data Dividend Project is, while that may be the case, we need some controls in place here. We need to do something about it. So again, I don't know how to better summarize their goal than to just take it right off their website. And their kind of mission statement that the Data Dividend Project puts out there is, it's a movement dedicated to taking back control of our personal data. Our data is our property. And if we allow companies to use it, we should get paid for it. And again, logically, that's that sounds pretty reasonable. If it's yours, you deserve to get paid for it. Okay, I'm with you so far. Um, it, 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 this all comes up because of, I think specifically in California, we're seeing this pushed right now because of CCPA, the Privacy Act that was passed in California at the start of this year. And now California compared to other states has some pretty tight data regulations and controls around what companies can and can't do with your data, um, how they can capture it, what they have to disclose, your ability to uh, review that data, ask for that data to be removed, things of that nature. Um, And what we're referencing is the data brokering industry. And if you haven't heard of this, again, what we're talking about data brokering, as with a lot of other brokering, is the sale and resale of consumer data. There's a ridiculous amount of data on you right now out there. Um, Just pick up that thing in your phone, you know, that thing that rings sometimes you text and talk on and you also watch, you know, TikTok or do whatever else you do on it. Your phone alone has so much data on you that any company would love to just have all of that information because it's going to have all of your interests. It's going to have what you like, what you don't like, what you spend your time on. Most importantly, what you spend your money on, it's going to have all that information and through that phone, for instance, and actually uh, props to Apple. They do a decent job of keeping that under wraps, but all those things you have installed on your phone, all the apps, especially we're talking about social media, big fan companies, things like that. There's a ton of data there on you that is being taken, recorded on the back end, identified. Sometimes it's anonymous and it's just about someone with your profile. Sometimes, a lot of the times, it's actually specifically you, you know, you person A that we're talking about here. And this is a $200 billion industry. Yes, billion with a B. This is a massive industry. I don't think some people quite realize how much of your data is being collected and used and sold in some regards. So uh, this isn't an insignificant little thing that we're talking about. Again, $200 billion. And again, to kind of sum up the rest of the goal here, as we're talking about kind of taking back um, control from this data brokering industry, um, there's another great quote. This is a much longer quote than I almost ever use on the show, but I don't know a better way to say it than the data dividend project website. puts. so here we go. Now under CCPA, Californians are endowed with a collection of unalienable data rights the right to know what information is being collected on you, the right to delete that information, and the right to opt out from technology companies collecting your data. These rights, however, are ignored and abused by technology companies. And unfortunately, individual consumers don't have the leverage to be able to go up against these companies. That's where DDP comes in. So again, what they're saying here is that there are these automatic rights with data. Again, this is real specific to California. There are some protections for uh, the rest of the U.S., definitely with GDPR, there's a similar kind of idea of that unalienable data rights. Um, but this is, is applied to everyone, and I think uh, the rest of the country is going to probably come along over the next few years, the next decade with similar rights. And even though these protections are in place, now what they're saying in California is, hey, we got a law. No one's enforcing it. We can't really do everything. So the entire goal of the DDP is to kind of form a collective group to go take it to those companies Um, ensure that they're protecting your data rights and not only that for all that data they are collecting that you opt into that you're being compensated for that in some way Uh, there's not a ton of great models out there i'll say i looked i was kept expecting to find something but there are not a ton of actual proprietary models on how you would be compensated for this data how you would be compensated for this information being collected on you but The end goal of this is right now, by the end of 2020, they got a goal, the next six months, reasonable goal. They're trying to get a million signups to, for lack of a better term, fight for my rights. It's almost one of those online petitions you see going around, ironically, on social media which is probably capturing data on that to target you on other stuff. But anyway, that's the goal. But uh, DDP is really, uh, this entire project is around taking back control of personal data. And if we aren't able to keep these companies from getting it, which is a little bit of the concession they're making, well, we want to be compensated fairly for it. All right, so let's take a step back and start thinking about this, not from DDP's website, um, but from some of the other stuff out there and using some common logic and thought processes here. So. Uh, Again, I mentioned the scope and possibility of this. This only applies to people under protections like GDPR, CCPA. While I do think that the rest of the U.S. and eventually the rest of the world are going to come up to this and are going to have these type of protections in place. Right now, me as a resident of Texas, I don't have nearly the amount of control over my data as someone in California, at least theoretically does, under this law. Again, part of DDP is that they're not in practice, only in theory. But and something that people don't realize is you're often willingly giving away incredibly valuable data and information on yourself, on your family, on your interests for free, for free services. Something as simple as a Google search. Again, have you ever paid for Google? Well, if you're a company doing AdWords, you have, but if you're just a consumer and you hop open the phone, no, Google's free. It's a free service provided. And you know, that's after I use Gmail um, to get my email. I use Google Maps to drive somewhere and use 16 other Google apps throughout the day. Those are all free for me to use. But Again, the trade-off that we're making is, as we mentioned, if I'm not paying for the product, I am the product. So because people are so willingly giving this away, one of the things that these laws were enacted for is to make people realize what they're giving away, add some protection in there. But even with all of that, there's still this, uh, this lack of authority or lack of enforcement on what companies are actually are doing with the data. Realistically, I can think of one or two specific examples over the last three or four years of a company actually really getting the, you know their hands smacked around this. Um, the Cambridge Analytica stuff with Facebook was the one you've all probably heard of and know about. There have been another, uh, other I'll call them analogous situations to that, but I'd say 99 times out of 100, um, no one's really checking whether companies are doing the right stuff with this data and the government's legal entities don't have any way of enforcing it. So um, one of the things DDP is suggesting is, hey, 2020 might be a perfect year to really start this and push. Um, People are feeling kind of drained and beaten down um, by the world in general right now. So it might be a good time to get them on board for some personal rights stuff. Obviously, there's a lot going on around social justice. And while, um, again, frankly, there's probably some much more important things going on in the world around equality and social justice. Data equality and the pri- the proprietary value of that data um, shouldn't be ignored, and, and you know it is important too, even if it's maybe not quite on the level of some of the other social justice things um, that our world and country are addressing right now. Um, but hey, 2020 might be the time we got CCPA in in place. Um, we have the opportunity, we have the legal right to really pursue this now. So let's make it happen. Okay, so let's talk about this. So what what would this look like? Let's say that, again, uh, uh, let's play a little game and just kind of go along with DDP. You know, a bunch of people sign up, um, they get some bargaining power, they get to the table in front of the big tech companies, um, and they're able to kind of you know demand monetization and uh, control of this data even more so than the law states or at least uh, demand enforcement of this. You can't flip a $200 billion industry on its head without impacts and challenges. Again, I mentioned $200 billion in the data brokering industry. So there's so many ways that people use this data. What you're probably all thinking of right now is the FANG appropriation. So again, the big tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, that's who you're probably thinking of, or other companies very similar to that. And that, that's fair. That's where a lot of this data is collected. That is where the largest volumes and probably the largest dollar figures tied in with this data are associated with. But think about when you went to a restaurant last time and you maybe filled a little survey at the end of the, of the meal or whatever. That's some personal data you're providing that they could be tying to your credit card receipts, your name, and stuff like that. Every time you download a new app and you create a little profile and you enter some basic questions, maybe it's health information, maybe it's personal interest, maybe it's, you know, what you want to dress your little avatar in in some game or app or something like that. All of that's information, and you you might not think of that as, like, the same thing as, you know, Google collecting all this big information, this big tech, you know, mean bully at the end of the street, for lack of a better term. Uh, But that's not always the case. Something I'm going to encourage you to think about is that if we're going to enforce this, it can't just be a big tech bias. It can't just be we'll go after the big guys because they have the biggest impact. And yes, obviously, I'm not sitting here defending those companies and some of their all of their data practices, um, even though I do think most of those do a lot of general public good. I think we need to consider that if we're going to draw this line in the sand, if we're going to actively enforce these things, We need to ensure that everyone's being enforced equally and that we're not just picking on the ones that it's easy to call to Capitol Hill and point a finger at and say, Google, you're the problem with all the data issues in the world. Uh, Yes, again, I'm not saying Google doesn't have any issues, but what I am saying is we need to consider every company, large, medium, small, in every way that this personal data is being used if we want to take this seriously. Another take I'm going to provide on this that, again, not to throw a wet blanket on the idea, but the unintended consequences that could come with some actions like this. And realistically, again, this is nothing that's going to happen anytime soon, but it definitely could long-term if more privacy laws are rolled out like this and more expectations about being compensated for data are pushed. So I've, I've talked about, I think literally in the last like three or four episodes, um, I've mentioned in some way how, in my opinion, as a data guy, data sharing should be encouraged. Um, in general amongst corporations amongst entities especially from an educational and informational perspective as much as possible yes there are obvious privacy concerns there are limits to this but data sharing has tons of value if and only if it is used the right way so don't just we can't just draw a um you know an invisible barrier here and say nope no data sharing whatsoever we know that that's not the right thing i'm not even going to waste time trying to convince you of that one today We know data sharing can help if it's done in the right way. Uh, Just last week, we talked about contact tracing. It was one of my main stories. And frankly, nearly everything we discussed there would be impossible if it weren't for some of these data practices, some of this data being captured and already shared with or without people's consent. And while I'm not saying that, you know, that's not a violation of rights and it's the right thing to do, I'm also not saying it's the wrong thing to do. There's a lot of gray area there, and I understand people on both sides of the argument on that one, but those type of things and the public good that can come from the sharing of data has to at least be considered, if not somehow exempt from these type of things. Again, that's just my plea for the, don't just you know hoard all the data, share data. When you share data and share information and share ideas, that's how the world advances. That's how we all get better, and that's how the world becomes a better place. And the other components that we need to think about this is, Okay, I'm going to go back to again this these kind of things really seem targeted to me at the uh, the fangs of the world, um, the big boys. If you were to implement this, and let's just you know, we're going to we're going to be a little uh, picky on uh, and real kind of mean to Google here. We're just going to say Google. Google, you have to start paying every person for every piece of data however small you capture on them. What happens to our economy if we flip? Even just let's take those five, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. You flip those five on their head and say, your entire business model is now kind of going away because. And maybe you could exclude Netflix from this a little bit since it is a paid service, but you flip those guys on their head that there are huge economic ramifications. These are some of the biggest companies that all of our indexes are really based around when it comes to the stock market and things like that. So again, you can't just, you know, twist the knife into their side and not expect there to be downstream impacts. And then let's even go a step further. How the heck are these services going to work in the future if data... Uh, isn't a payment. you know if your personal information, if you aren't the product anymore now you have control of that, how do these services work? Are, if uh, Google is not going to be able to exist, you're, what, what search engine are you going to use? You're gonna have to rely on something open source and some kind of probably educationally backed and funded technology out there because Google can't exist if they can't collect your data and make money off of it. That's the way that they exist. That's their economic model. As an example of this, let's say that Facebook tomorrow comes out and says, hey, Everyone on Facebook, you know, we hear you loud and clear. We are all that data. You can go dig in your settings and find about you. We're not going to capture any of that anymore. We're not going to target relevant things at you. We're not going to capture your data. We're not going to sell your data. We're not going to let people have your data. Okay. So many of you might think, great. You know, Facebook finally got it. They're going to stop being intrusive. Well, at the same time, Facebook says, bad news. That's how we make all of our revenue. So in order to actually maintain a business operation here, you're now gonna pay, let's say, $19.99 a month for Facebook. Now, there's a good chunk of you who might scoff at that and say, okay, well, I'll delete my Facebook. There's a lot of you though who are probably gonna sit there and think, man, I spend a lot of nights and a lot of idle time just sitting there flipping through my Facebook feed. Okay, I'll pay for that. That changes the dynamics of what Facebook is. Now it's a paid platform. But I would challenge even those of you who say, okay, I would pay for that. That's fine. How many of you, when you first signed up for Facebook, think back probably, you know, a decade ago, give or take, and think about when you heard about Facebook and maybe even MySpace, if you're going to go way back, how many of you had signed up for that? If you knew you were going in paying 20 bucks a month, almost no one, these type of things don't advance. And for all the negatives that you could point to social media, if you know me, I'm frankly not the biggest social media advocate, at least on a personal level I'm much more on a business side. Think there's value there. But what does our world look like in terms of sharing thoughts and ideas if we don't have these platforms? Again, not saying there's not benefits based on some of the things we've seen happen over the last few months, especially here around the US, but it's a very different world. And we just went way down this rabbit hole of unintended consequences. So, to wrap this kind of article up, two things. One, if I, you couldn't tell from what I'm saying here, my take is that it's definitely an interesting principle. I'm curious to see where this goes, especially not even being in the data world only, but just in general. However, I'm definitely in the delusional camp, I think. While I think there's some benefit to it, and I think there's some good ideas, and I don't think it would be a total disaster in every way, I do think it's not really enforceable. It's really hard to apply. It doesn't apply to a barred enough part of the U.S. right now. All it applies to really would be California, Um, and they need to reconsider kind of what they're going for. I think some type of increase in enforcement of data privacy laws and making sure people maintain those while also being fine with the, again, if you aren't buying the product, you are the product. I don't think there's a problem with that model. I think it's something people should be made aware of maybe, get a little more information up front, but that doesn't mean we shut it down. So if you feel strongly about this, go check out the DDP website, see what they're doing. As we continue to see more privacy laws, we just saw Brazil's LGPD privacy law get rolled out in the last month or two. Um, I believe it actually goes into enforcement here in a couple days. Think about these kind of things and think about where the world's going with data. While I want you to hopefully believe that sharing data is good, we probably do need to draw a line. And it's an interesting time in the world because we're gonna kind of come to an inflection point on how we really handle this. With that, we are gonna take a quick commercial break here And Diving Into Data. We're gonna be back, just like sports are back. And that's our final topic of the day. Stick around, we'll be right back. Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to Diving Into Data. So that was a little bit more of a data-heavy topic because we're talking about data, data, data. Next one, of course, it's diving into data will be related to, but I'm not going to lie. The focus of the next one is sports are back. I gave myself a little subheader here on my notes. Sports are back, but at what cost? And when I'm talking about this cost, we're not getting into the, is the MLB going to be able to make it through the season? Some news broke in the last, uh, actually, 24 hours here Around a couple teams having some spikes, some series being canceled. Doesn't make me overly optimistic, if I'm being honest, that all the leagues will make it through how they're hoping. But we're going to stay positive because I need sports in my life. Maybe you do, too, if you're anything like me. But real quick, uh, as always, again, have some awesome sources. So a Barron's article talking about how pro sports leagues are struggling to reopen. It's about a month old, but um, has some great economic data that I'm going to reference around sports leagues and what they should expect in this world. Found a great risk and insurance article, three lessons pro sports has to offer crowd-driven businesses. I think it's some cool takes on some of the things pro sports are going to need to do, but also how those can apply to other businesses out there in the world that are crowd-driven. Think restaurants, think venues, things of that nature. And then the last one was also a Wired article, tech that could help pro sports adapt to the pandemic. If you read Wired, they always have great tech stuff. Um, There's some really cool specific references they made to some uh, innovations in the sporting world that actually might be things long-term that are a great idea, regardless of the uh, pandemic situation. So um, again, overall, the big topic here, sports are back. I keep saying it over and over because it just, it's like Christmas morning um, to me. And if you're a sports fan, I'm sure you feel the same way. But again, we know there are challenges. There are risks out there. Even though sports are back, um, the MLB is back up and running. NBA and NHL are not far behind with their bubble cities. Um, And then as of right now, the NFL and NCAA football are still planning to go on this fall. Uh, we are going to steer clear in this discussion. We're going to talk just about the pro sports leagues. The college is kind of another animal, and there's another, a lot more at play there, especially when you deal with the amateur status of athletes and things of that nature. So maybe we'll save that topic for another day. But just looking at the pro sports leagues, okay, we know that they're back. It's great. Again, I mentioned I got a game over here on the side of my, uh, out of my field of view here, the Rangers playing the Rockies. Um, the MLB is back. But – I'm also looking at an empty stadium. I'm looking at empty stands. I don't see any concessions. I don't see any vendors. If I were to look out in the parking lot of the stadium, I'd see a bunch of empty parking spots not making any money. So how much are the teams really going to take a hit on this? Got some great estimates from Barron's. They've estimated that 40% of MLB's annual revenue, which is about $10.7 billion, is from ticket sales and in-game sales. So that is tickets, merchandise, concessions, parking, things of that nature. That uh, R&I article I mentioned, the risk and insurance article says NFL is about 38% of their revenues tied up to tickets, concessions, and merchandise. That's a big chunk of the, the pie there. It's not half, but it's, you know, well over a third of the money that these leagues generate is from this in-person attendance in some regard or fashion. So whenever you take that piece out of the pie, all of a sudden things like salary caps, the rosters, the way they're constructed, how much money the teams are willing to spend. Well, 40% of that, uh, You know, that intake is now gone. There's going to be some impacts. If you've been paying attention to sports the last couple months, there have been some significant kind of labor and financial disagreements between player unions and the leagues. Owners obviously kind of want to cut wages. Uh, In the most simple terms, they say, hey, if we're losing 40% of our revenue this year, then we want to cut 40% um, of your guys' salary because, that hey, we're all in this together. As an aside, we're going to hop right back into this, but this is one that's kind of a little pet peeve of mine this is personal opinion, nothing to do with uh, um, any stats or anything out there. But in my personal opinion, owners take that risk. I am so tired of hearing about billionaires complain that they're going to take a little bit of a loss this year. They're not going to make as much money this year. I don't care if it's a pro sports team or any other business that you know. Part of the benefit of ownership is the unlimited potential for profits. I'm a salaried employee for market scale. I love market scale to death, but if market scale makes a ridiculous amount of money, while I hope I get a nice little bump and you know that, that does well for me, I'm not actually getting that money. The ownership of the company is getting that money. In the baseball and in football and in every pro sport, ownership takes that risk by owning the team. That is inherent to owning a business. If things are good, it's good. It's even better for you. If things are bad, well, unfortunately, you are the owner. You are responsible for that. My personal opinion is to tell all of the billionaire owners out there, deal with it. I'm tired of hearing about it. I don't care how much money you're going to lose in this day, this season. There are a billion people in the world who would love to own a professional sports team. And there are tons of people out there who could actually afford one who would line up around the block to buy some of these. So deal with it. If you do prorated salaries in the MLB, because you're only playing less than half a season. Okay. I can get on board with that. You play two thirds of the game or you play a third of the games, give or take, you're going to get a third of the money. I'm cool with that, but don't ask people to take cuts beyond that. Stop being ridiculous. Okay, back to diving into data. I just had to get that out because it's been driving me insane. But we see all this money again. They're down thirty, some thirty, forty percent. And another good way to look at this let's let's also make sure that this is kind of holding consistent, not only from the projected losses, but the actual kind of what we can see. Um, the best way I could think of doing this is actually from sports stocks. Again, this is all from that um, risk and insurance article and from that Barron's article. Sports stocks this year are down on average about 30 to 40%, which is much worse than the S&P and some of the other indexes out there. And when I say sports stocks, I'm talking about stocks that are inherently tied to professional sports in America. So that is everything from MSG, which is the Madison Square Garden Corporation, owns the Knicks and the uh, Madison Square Garden. That is a stock like Liberty Media Braves, which is a conglomerate of stocks that actually is kind of the owner of the Atlanta Braves franchise, Um, And that's even down to Anheuser-Busch and beer companies who um, make a ton of money, not only from in-person, you know, restaurants, bars, things of that nature taking a hit, but from these sporting events. So when you look across the board, it's pretty clear that um, these losses are not just a talking point for owners. They're real. They're going to have a significant business impact Um, stocks and the depreciation of those stocks has kind of painted that picture. All right. So now we've established not going to make that much money this year. Again, you heard my personal opinion that suck it up ownership, but we got to move forward because we do need to find a way to be logical about this. How are we going to replace and control these losses? And that risk and insurance article had some really cool ideas and some things that opened up my mind um, just in researching this topic that see if it opens up yours the same way. So the three big things that this article mentioned was replacing ticket revenue. How are you going to do that? Well, there's so a lot of ways you can actually think about doing that. Um, more access for higher levels, uh, or for I'm sorry, more money for higher levels of access. Yes, I get, you know, uh, every one of these teams has some broadcast deal, whether it's with, you know, Fox, CBS, whether it's with a local affiliate down here in Dallas, it's Fox Sports Southwest. All these teams are, make, are making money from those deals and that's still why these numbers are only 30 to 40% not 90% of the revenue is those massive TV and streaming deals they have. But they also have a limited broadcast. I am not getting an incredibly deep experience. I'm not going behind the scenes um, with the Rangers or the Cowboys or something like that as part of that, you know, cable package. So let's open some more access up. Let's get even deeper and diver just like you could on a website for more money. Let's look at the possibility of virtual tickets. So you might say a virtual ticket. What the heck? Okay. So yes, I can watch the general game from the, you know, broadcast view and all that. But what if I want to sit courtside and watch the game virtually? They absolutely have the technology to set up some camera rays specifically around court view um, or from the backboard view or, you know, in the NFL, they have a ton of opportunities, how big the stadium is and how big the field is for all these different views. If you ever watch national championship games on ESPN and flip over to like ESPN two or ESPN news, they always have these kind of cool multi-angle experiences. Heck, I'm a sports fan. This year, I think I'd be willing to pay a little bit. If I needed to fork over $10 to be able to get all my favorite sports teams from some cool, unique views, maybe different takes, different analysts, things like that, people might open up the bank for that. That's worth considering. And the last one that they mentioned with this replacing ticket revenue, I'm not sure technologically it's here today, but VR experiences are I think of the future here. Why would you need to go to a game in the future if we get this technology up to date? If we have those courtside cameras that you're wearing your VR headset, you have the crowd noise piped in, and it's like you're there. Again, yes, maybe right now this isn't the perfect option for sports teams to take on, but it's something to consider. We're going to get back to this innovation thing in a second, so it opens up some opportunity there. The second one is stimulating crowd energy. Something that I actually did not really consider at all, but I'm really glad that they said was one of the things when watching a broadcast – um, and I've actually noticed this watching the MLB the first few games here. The crowd noise, the crowd reactions, being a if making you at home feel like you're part of the game is a significant reason I enjoy watching the sport on TV. It's not just watching the game itself. It is watching the crowd. So how do you make a more engaging broadcast? The MLB has started to go with kind of piping sound into the stadiums, into the broadcast. I think that's going okay. I'm sure some people have some real negative takes on it, but... I, I think it's kind of cool, and I think it's kind of cool they've even got it to where they have you know reactions and ooh and ah and boos if bad things happen. It, it, it's, there's you know, some range to it. I think it's pretty cool. So while that's great, what about broadcasts with more player access? That's something that I think the NBA uh, bubble is going to really open up for us where uh, the mic'd up opportunities, for lack of a better term, if you ever watch sports, there's tons of opportunity where you can really dive into player access, um, have interviews in the huddles, really watch them obviously do it in a way that you know doesn't create an uneven competitive advantage for a team and yada 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 but we have more access you because you don't have that crowd and it's just a given rather than just replacing the sound by that let's think about ways that we can take advantage of a more intimate setting let's think about ways that you can use the numbers to figure out what people really want to see and try out different things. Get creative. Um, you know, Do a uh, entirely player-led broadcast one night, followed by a mic'd up only where you're just listening like you're almost watching a pickup game at you know, Rucker Park or something. All these things are interesting, cool new ideas that now is the time to try them. What do you got to lose, sports leagues? You're going to have the diehards like me tuning into every game. Uh, I'm a little ashamed to say. Over the last few years, if you ask me, I probably watched... I don't know, give or take one out of every three Rangers games. Just There's a lot of them. There are 162. I don't have that much time. I'm a dad. I got lots of stuff going on. So I have not missed a pitch because I'm a sports fan and sports are back. But take advantage of this. Don't just be happy with the fact that we have sports back. Let's use this as a chance to innovate sports. And when we're getting into that, the last point um, of that risk and insurance article that also ties into this tech article that we talked about from Wired is what can we do to... Retain interest in live events while also taking advantage of tech that can help make these better. What we're thinking about here, um, again, is this chance for innovation and improvement. There's going to be something when we look back in a couple of years that is going to become standard as part of COVID and kind of the COVID world of sports that we're going to look back and say, well, why did we do it anyway else? You know, we should have always done this. How did we do this before? We have this opportunity to advance whether it's, you know, on field tech. Let's talk about the NFL, I think, is a great example. They're partnering with Oakley to build mask and shield kind of combination things that everyone's going to wear on their hel- helmet, um, even talking about somehow building an N95 into it. Okay. Hey, those masks and shields could be a safety improvement if we can get them where they're, you know, they're not a visibility issue, not a heat or breathing issue, things like that. Maybe that's something that becomes standard in youth sports in the future, youth football. Maybe it makes things safer. I don't know. Now's a great opportunity to try it out and see what happens. And the NBA, they're doing these things, these aura rings, O-U-R-A. I might be mispronouncing that, and apologies to that company if I am. But what it does is it tracks vital health signs of all the players in the bubble. And I think most of the NBA opted into wearing these things. And while there are obviously some data privacy concerns there, back to our first point, some of the other pieces around that, what this is doing is allowing the uh, health uh, managers of the team, whether that's trainers, whether that's doctors, whoever it is that's helping monitor the situation kind of keep an eye on things like temperatures and respiratory rates, oxygen levels, so that maybe they can't, you know, predict when someone's going to get COVID, but they might be able to pull a guy aside and be like, Hey, you've had some signs. We need to make sure you go get tested again or get a second test or get retested, whatever it may be. There's some cool health opportunities that's going to open up that even when they're not monitoring for COVID testing, once we get this vaccine out and everything gets back to normal, but maybe that health information not only is something that you could find entertainment value in, maybe the heart rate becomes something uh, just like you're watching in the NFL now and you can see the guy was running 20.3 miles an hour on the breakaway down the sideline, but you could see his heart rate really rising at the end when he got to the goal line. Something like that would be awesome. So another cool opportunity there. Um, Not even just on the field, but think about the sports environment. When you go to a game, think about all the ways you interact with people and yes, I don't have a great solution for, well, you're going to be sitting by somebody. Yeah, I haven't figured that one out yet, but let's talk about other touch points at the game. Ticketless entry. There's no reason that anyone needs a paper ticket anymore and needs to hand that back and forth with someone else to get it scanned. You can do ticketless entry. A lot of companies, a lot of stadiums already do. Let's make that the norm. Let's make that the only way we do things. Touchless payments. There's this great idea that someone was mentioning in that article where Uh, If you're a season ticket holder, not only obviously you could use your Apple Pay and do things like that, but what if they, when you sign up for your season tickets, they got a digital scan of your face, and through facial recognition, you could just walk up to different vending machines, different vendors, different stands at the ballpark, it would automatically recognize you, charge you to your credit card that you've put on file, and allow for that touchless, seamless experience. Now we're not just looking at something that you know reduces touch and physical contact for the current situation, but that could significantly speed up concessions. I don't know how many plays at games I've missed where you're standing in the concession line waiting for the guy to just in front of you to go back and forth 10 times between peanuts and popcorn and you hear the ooh or the ah coming from the stadium and you think, man, what did I just miss because I'm sitting here standing in this line? It's an opportunity to innovate. We can make sports more engaging. We can make it more personal. And if you've listened to some of the things I've been talking about around general content in the last few weeks, This is how every piece of content, we don't even need to just be specific to sports. There's an opportunity that you can take this less in person and rather than just viewing it as a negative, rather than just viewing it as a, you know, as this burden that we all have, which there's absolutely some negatives to it. Don't get me wrong. We can make something better of this. We can innovate. We can take this opportunity to try some new stuff, to push the boundary on what technology allows us to do and open up a new experiences new opportunities that were unthinkable before we were kind of forced into this situation and think of all the great that can come from that so uh, again i would leave you and would like you if if i were you take away from this um, episode and kind of walk away and think about what can i do to innovate at my company what could i do to innovate in my job what can i do to innovate even with my family and some of the stuff we're doing Think about more creative ways because the greatest opportunities come from the greatest challenges. So let's put our minds together. As the world continues to advance, we're going to get a vaccine. We're going to get better. Things are going to get better. I promise you out there. But let's take advantage of this opportunity and make things better, not just wait for them to get better. I appreciate you guys joining me this week on diving into data. Again, our title this week was the Data Dividend Project, Delightful, Delusional, or Disaster. We talk through the DDP, what it is, what I think about it. While I think it's an incredible idea generally to, you know, protect people's data, there are some risks. There's going to be a lot of challenges there. So I'm curious to see how that shakes out over the coming months and years. And then our second topic couldn't stay away forever sports are back, but even though sports are back, there are some challenges. What are those challenges? What kind of revenue, you know, shortfalls are these professional sport leagues going to see and more importantly. What can we do to take this opportunity, embrace it, and make things better, make experiences better, make content better? I appreciate everyone joining me. We'll be back next week with another episode of Diving Into Data. And until then, take it easy. See ya.